Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I'm here today with Sarah Belclair. She's a fine art photographer and an art librarian. And she's got a couple things that have been going on past and present. So Sarah, why don't you start by um, walking us through your invisible illnesses? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it feels like a really long story to me because this is like 10 years ago that I first got sick. Mm. Um, when I was in college, I came down with a flu-like illness, and at the time, I was on a medication for a completely unrelated um, GI upset. Okay. okay. Um, you were already having, like, digestive problems aside from Yes. That. Yep. And the medication was not only not really helping the digestive problems, but I came to find out that it was also giving me... An allergic reaction, which manifested itself in what they call drug-induced lupus. Um, Tell us about that, because when you mentioned this to me, I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> I know. It's, it's obviously something that I had never heard of before it happened to me, and I've actually never met anyone else who has had it, although it's not that uncommon. Wow. Um, and the medication that I was on is actually known to cause drug-induced lupus. Um, so it is all the symptoms of lupus, um, related to that medication. So when you stop taking the medication, the symptoms start to go away. It's just so weird to me that doctors would give people a medicine that causes something that is potentially even worse than what you were going through. It was so much worse. I guess for some people it, it works. Um, it does what it's supposed to do. But it's something that really needs to be monitored, and um, you know, I probably wasn't monitored as closely as I as I should have been. Right. Um, so this affected every system in my body except for my nervous system. I was very fortunate that I did not have any damage to my nervous system. Wow. Um, but I had fluid buildup around my heart and my lungs. I couldn't breathe. I had um, like my face got all fat and purple. It was like a full-blown allergic reaction. Oh my God. And the doctors knew, like, did they warn you about the side effects? You know what? I was 18. So they, my mom was still kind of my intermediary for medical stuff. And I think they might have mentioned it um, to her, but I'm not sure. I sure wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Well, it's um, just like kind of birth control. Is It's the same thing. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. They sort of tell you about it, but like we kind of take for granted sometimes what the side effects of things are going to be because we go, oh, it's like one in 50 people. It's not going to be me. That is so yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was me. <laughs> oh my God. But did it actually help what you were taking it for as well though? Like Um, not really. Um, <laughs> I had taken a couple different things before that to try and alleviate the GI issues and nothing had really worked. And it wasn't until, I mean, I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but it wasn't until after I recovered from drug induced lupus that it was really just a diet change that I needed. Um, and that's what 
got rid of the GI problems for me. You know, people are sensitive to different foods and and you just need to kind of learn what works for you. And that's really all it was. Wow. Well, and also because if you change, if you have food sensitivities and you change what you're eating, that can help really clear your gut. If you've got building up, I mean, that's certainly helped with me immensely changing my diet. So so interesting. That's yeah, I know. I know. You got drug induced lupus instead. Hooray. I know. Right. (laughs) Oh, so the second part of that story is that in 2015, um, I was at my neurologist for an appointment to do with my migraines, Hmm. which is a completely separate illness. So you have chronic migraines too. I do. Oh, fun. Related to birth control, actually. <laughs> oh, even funner. <laughs> I know. I have a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like, you say that, and, and we say it, and we can have a laugh about it, but, like, the number of people who are living with chronic migraines mm-hmm. um, and issues around birth control that, like, we're not addressing because we don't really notice the symptoms because they don't, they seem manageable, like a migraine, because it's like sometimes you can take a medication for it, but, like, if there are drugs that are causing these problems and, and we're not aware of them before we take the drugs and all that kind of thing. So I'm interested to hear how this is all manifested for you. It's, it's funny, the migraines also, that wasn't a thing that developed until later. Um, people can, you know, not, not have chronic migraines until later in life. Um, yeah. Cause your hormones change. Yep. Like totally. changes all the time. Yep. Exactly. Wow. So you're at your neurologist's um, office. So you've already recovered from the drug-induced lupus at this point. Yes, I was considered in remission at that point. Okay. And by the way, how long did that recovery take? Probably um, a couple of years. Um, it was my kidneys that kind of lingered. I had uh, proteinuria, which is yeah. you know a big problem for a lot of people who have kidney damage from lupus. Um, but once so that was kind of the last thing that resolved itself. And after that, I have not had any lupus symptoms since then. Wow. Okay. So now we're on to the migraine situation and we're at the neurologist's office. Yes. So we've, we're, we're in the future now. Well, the past for us, we're in 2015. Um, I was at my neurologist. He was taking my pulse and he said, your pulse is 40 something. That's really low. Um, do you feel faint? And I said, no. <laughs> um, so he said, you need to see your primary care and have them check out your heart. Okay. Yeah, so I went to my primary care. They also noticed my pulse was really low. And after I had an echocardiogram, what they found out was that I had an enlarged heart and an irregular heartbeat. So I was having lots of double beats, triple beats, cool rhythms going on in there um, that were causing them to not be able to actually feel every beat because some of the beats were really strong and some were really light and they just couldn't feel them. So it made it seem like my pulse was really low, but it actually wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So I was, my primary care was very concerned when she felt my very low pulse, but she, I wasn't on the floor. So, um, she knew it was something unusual. Does that mean that you actually had, like that your heart was actually beating faster because of these irregular beats? What did it actually mean? And and how did, what did they diagnose you with? Well, I'll tell you, it actually, it beats irregularly. So sometimes it beats really fast all in a row and sometimes it beats normally. Okay. So Um, so, it just goes fast or normal. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so I ended up going to a cardiologist, um, who said that I had cardiomyopathy, um, which is what I struggle with now. It's dilated cardiomyopathy, which means that my heart muscle is enlarged. And this um, is likely because of the lupus? That is something that I don't think any cardiologist really has definitively told me, but we did find x-rays of my stomach from when I was in the hospital with lupus, and part of my heart can be seen in that x-ray. Um, so when I had a, a GI-related x-ray before I was in the hospital, my heart looked normal and when I was in the hospital and they took another GI x-ray, um, there was scarring on my heart. So, Okay, so like clearly this is because of the drugs that, you were, that were administered to you when you were taking care of your GI issues. It seems very clear to me. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's I think, evidence right there. So, I mean, how do you proceed with something like this? Was it sort of beyond the 
the, um, the statute of limitations for um, some kind of medical malpractice suit? Like, did you decide, like, I've got to sue the drug company or the doctors or what did you do? It's funny. I had thought about that when I first was ill because I felt like I had not been monitored enough, but I had recovered from the illness. Um, I felt like the doctor was trying to do their job. Um, and I decided not to proceed with anything legally. But when I found out that I had this heart condition that was going to affect my life way more than my one lupus flare did. Yeah. Well, um, your one lupus flare that lasted a couple of years, but <laughs> yeah. And this has lasted longer than that. So that goes to show you how much it's impacted my life. But yeah. Um, I did look into it. Um, I spoke to a couple of lawyers and I said, you know, I don't know who's to blame for this, but I feel like there was negligence. And um, they said, why didn't you pursue this sooner? And I said, because I was trying to recover from it. And also, like, you didn't know that you had a heart condition until a couple of years later. Like, it took a lot for this to develop, even though there is a, a very clear link between the drugs and the condition. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But from a legal standpoint, it's not really a case for them because I think the statute of limitations, at least for Massachusetts, where I am, is I think it's three years since you find out that you have a condition as a result of the malpractice. Uh, so I was very close to that three years at that point. Um, and I said, you know what, never mind. <laughs> well, and, I, and I suppose also there's, there's an emotional element here too, right? Because oh, yeah. if you were to pursue a case, you would you know, probably for the next several years, be reliving a lot of the, the emotional trauma associated. Oh, yeah. Which would not have been very useful to your health either and would have been very stressful, I'm sure. No, I, I mean, I was crying on the phone with the lawyer just telling the story. And I mean, it was hard for my mom too, because she was really, um, you know, the concerned parent through all of that. And she was kind of having to relay her notes from my hospitalization since I was not really with it at that time. And it was hard for her too. So yeah, I didn't want to put both of us through that. Well, and I imagine you were, I mean, a teenager, early twenties when this was happening. Is that right? This was, so the, the initial bout of drug induced lupus, I was 18. So that was 2008. Right. Um, and this recurrence, well, not recurrence, it was going on the whole time. I just didn't know about it. Yeah. But as it manifested, was worse and more, more nefarious, if you will. Yes, um, exactly. right. Okay. So it was from 18 onward pretty much. And that's also a time when it's like most kids are like robust and, you know, healthy. And all of a sudden your mom is a, is a caretaker and I'm sure very concerned. So on a certain level, I'm sure not pursuing legal action was probably less stressful for her as well because yep. you both would have been reliving a lot of that trauma, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Wow. Now, so what is with, because you've got cardiomyopathy and migraines now from the sounds, yes. right? So what does a typical day or week look like um, and, and what, how do the symptoms come up and how do you manage them? It's funny. I... For the most part, my migraines are under control because I stopped taking oral birth control, um, which goes into your bloodstream more, is what I'm told by my gynecologist. Um, it's amazing what a difference that has made switching off of oral birth control. Wow. But you're um, still, do you mind if I ask, are you still on birth control? Yes, I have an IUD now, um, which has been a lot better for me. It has other side effects, don't get me wrong. Um, and some of them, pretty bad, um, yeah. like emotional side effects. But for the most part, um, I'm able to live my life every day like I did before I had chronic migraines. Okay. And then what so, about everything with your heart? So my heart is, it's funny. I don't have like a typical day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's worse. Um, when I have a day that I am doing a lot of physical activity, you know, I work in a library, um, with stacks, we have to climb up and down ladders to get things. Mm -hmm. We have to push equipment around. Um, when I'm doing that, it can be really hard. Um, I don't get out of breath as much anymore because I'm on medications that help with that. But, um, I get lightheaded when I stand up really quickly. Um, I feel like I'm going to fall over. <laughs> Oh, uh, things like that. I have to be very careful with how I exercise and it's, that can be a delicate balance because I have to exercise to keep my heart healthy, 
but I also get tired very easily. I get lightheaded. Um, so so it's very difficult. Hard? Like exercise classes are, are harder. Is it better when you do your own sort of structured workout? I do entirely my own um, because when I exercise with other people, it's not able to keep up. Um, yeah. It doesn't work, which is a shame because that's a really good way to motivate yourself. But yeah. instead, I have to be self-motivated, which is very difficult because exercising is really boring. <laughs> no. I was going to say, I'm not the biggest fan myself. so <laughs> But, you know, I mean, yeah. I've kind of learned to be self-motivated through all of this. So that's kind of the strategy I have to use. Now, this is sort of a morbid question, but do we know if the cardiomyopathy is something that can affect you longer term in terms of your health or life expectancy? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, that's kind of been the hardest thing to come to terms with is that I will have it for my entire life. Um, and I've been told um, by a doctor who was very, I guess, reality driven <laughs> that it could, yeah, that it could get better it could stay the same or it could get worse. And I have been on medications now for four years and it has not gotten better. So it will either likely stay the same or get worse. Um, if it gets worse, um, you know, someday in the future, I might need a heart transplant. That's something that when I think about it really hard, I just, it, I get really depressed. Um, yeah. And so my strategy is to live in the moment. Um, I don't think that that will ever happen. Who knows? It might. But the reality is that um, a lot of other things could happen too, uh, to my health. So it's not really worth it to, to be upset about things that you're predicting. Absolutely. Um, and have you had to have any surgeries in and around your heart in all this time as well? Yes. Um, I say that like I'm excited, but really I'm just excited to talk about it because it's actually kind of interesting. Mm. Um, I was told when I was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy that I might have to have um, a defibrillator. And Oh my God, I'm, I'm making a wow face because no one can see this, but like my eyes just like popped out of my head. Like, like <laughs> in your body? Yes, like an internal implanted defibrillator. Okay. <laughs> um, that would literally just watch me and wait to see if my heart had any abnormal rhythms. And if it had so many that I passed out, it would shock me to wake me up. Oh my God. Yes. And have you had this implanted? I have. Um, it was, it was pretty much left up to me at a certain point. Um, my ejection fraction, which is how it's an indication of how well my heart pumps, um, has been between 30 and 40%, which is not super low. Um, so my cardiologist at Mass General Hospital told me that I could have a defibrillator if I wanted to, but he strongly recommended it. And um, after kind of grappling with the fact that they were going to cut me open and I was going to have a giant scar, I said, you know what, let's just get this over with. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because this is something where you're, you're on the invisible illness spectrum, obviously, because mm -hmm. you have these symptoms that like you feel and not necessarily everyone sees, but something like a huge scar on your chest yeah. uh, is something that's very visible, but not in an everyday setting, right? We don't walk around with our shirts off. Um, well, but some people do. Some people do. <laughs> um, that's nice for them. Um, <laughs> but um, you've documented some of this in your photography, haven't you? I have. Um, when I decided to have the surgery, I kind of went into it with a let's do this mentality. Mm. And I figured I'm going to use this somehow. Um, I have a lot of um, mentors in the photography world who really encouraged me to explore this and use photography as a tool for recovery. Um, and so that's what I decided to do. Um, the day that I had my surgery, um, I was taking selfies. And then the day that I came home from my surgery, which was literally 24 hours after I was taking portraits, um, and people were saying to me, wow, that's like, aren't you in pain? Like, that's amazing that you would put yourself through that. But really, it made me feel good. It was like getting back to reality and doing something that's normal for me. 
Mm. Um, and so I decided that I was going to just kind of photograph, uh, through the whole healing process, which was a long process. (laughs) How long a process was it? I had some complications and I still have some complications from the surgery. So I would say it's still ongoing. Um, the device is fairly new in terms of technology. I don't have the typical defibrillator that sits over your heart. I have one that's implanted in my side right under my armpit. Okay. Um, and it has leads that go up my chest and the lead kind of has been moving around. Um, for most people, it, once it heals, it stays put. But for me, it has been kind of popping in and out of place. Um, and when it does, I have nerve pain. Um, Oh God. And that can be really bad. It, it's like if a piece of paper touched me, it would feel like I was being stabbed. (laughs) It's very painful when it happens. Um, but fortunately at mass general where I had my surgery done and I'm still treated, um, they are very good listeners. They take it really seriously every time it happens to me. Mm. And I have a doctor who will see me face-to-face any day that I need to be seen. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. Oh, that's really, really great. Because often with these stories, you hear more sort of the earlier part of your story where there's someone not listening or not giving you all the information that you need. Um, So it's great to know that you've got sort of an advocate in that way, or or at least someone knowledgeable who you can turn to who's available to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of which, I I wanted to go back sort of to what you were talking about earlier with your mom. Um, And, you know, because it sounds like she was really, she was your person through this whole experience. Um, How has that sort of impacted your relationship? Has it changed your relationship, deepened it in any particular way? Well, I've always, I've always been close with my mom. Um, but for sure, I think it made her, um, not see me differently, but I think she worries about me more now. Mm-hmm. And, um, in some ways it's made me even closer to her. And in some ways it's made me feel like, come on, mom, I just want to do this by myself. <laughs> but no matter what, at the end of the day, she is my advocate. And in some ways I feel like I still I still need an advocate and I'm so lucky to, to have her. Um, you know, she's really smart. She takes a lot of notes. Um, she is, she's really good at self-advocacy, like making sure that you understand what your doctor is telling you, um, looking stuff up yourself to kind of fact check. Um, so without her, I would not have had that. I just want to highlight how important that is because I think so many of us end up in this world when we get hit with something, with some kind of illness. And we're so used to being well that the minute we get something that that makes our bodies not respond in the way that they used to, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. it's a real steep learning curve to to gather information and to know where to look for information and to be able to speak up for yourself. So the fact that you have someone on your team, um, you know, who, who, is naturally doing that for you. It's such a great lesson. And it's so wonderful that you've had her the whole way through. Um, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) It's really exceptional. So you're very lucky in that way. And I'm sure your mom thinks she's very lucky to have you too. Oh God, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm quite sure. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive because of my Hashimoto's and medications. And this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. The Wave was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. But because the technology is new, it can be pricey. So for those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And... Because you also listen to Uninvisible, they're offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So you also talked a little bit about like, you know, if you're climbing the ladders at work um, in the stacks and you get short of breath and things like that, how do you balance the demands of work and life? 
with the cardiomyopathy because I imagine stress is also a big factor. So you've got to mitigate that on the daily. <laughs> exactly. I'm very fortunate that I work in museums, which are, it's not really a, a line of work where you're expected to, I don't know, like have to run around doing really exhausting things every day. Um, I am fortunate that I have worked for institutions that have been really open um, and able to discuss these things with me. Mm. Um, But in actuality, I think that I am pretty good at knowing my own limits. Um, It's never impacted my ability to do my job uh, because I plan ahead. Um, I'm aware of what my, the expectations are ahead of time. Um, And I realize that I have to kind of put in that extra effort um, to make sure that I'm prepared. Um, but if it need, if it means that I need to eat, um, like a granola bar in the middle of the day to make sure my blood pressure is good so that I can go and do something, then I'm going to do it so I can do my job. Yeah. So you really are on top of your functioning and and it's really about the planning. It sounds like, which is what it becomes for so many of us, because, um, I think a lot of us are used to sort of that, we just go, go, go all the time. (laughs) You suddenly realize like, oh, I have to make a dietary change as you discovered, or, you know, I've got to make sure that I don't end up with hypoglycemia or, you know, so being prepared all the time with snacks that you can actually digest, um, you know, and, and eating at regular times, as you're saying, so being a lot more structured and prepared for that structure, but it makes all the difference, doesn't it? (laughs) It makes a huge difference. And it's funny, like, that's kind of one of the things that I've tackled in my photography is that I really think that there's not a great culture of compassion in the work environment. If you say that you're sick, your boss says, well, give me a doctor's note to prove it. Mm -hmm. I don't really like that. Um, (laughs) I wish that more workplaces were as compassionate as ones in my experience have been to enable you to feel like you can, you know, be prepared. Yeah. And that, that you're respected for who you are and what you have to offer and that yeah. your condition is not going to affect your commitment to the work. Exactly. Now, yeah. I, and I, I sort of wonder, cause I mean, it sounds like you've been pretty open with your employers about the cardiomyopathy. Do you tell people when you're going in for a job interview? Like when do you tell people like, Hey, by the way, I have a heart condition and I have a defibrillator in my chest. That is such a great question. Um, I don't tell, uh, I don't, I don't disclose it at job interviews Mm -hmm. because it's never impacted my ability to do my work. So I feel like there's no point for them to know. The reason that I tell them once I actually sit down in my office on my first day is because if my defibrillator went off, I want them to know, (laughs) to know what happened and to know what to do with me. Um, But you know, there, that law is in place for a reason that you don't have to disclose um, medical things. And I think the point is, if you feel that you can do your job, then you can do your job. You don't need someone else saying, well, can she do her job? Because you know you better than they know you. Yeah. Well, and, and we also hope, I mean, it's all, this is an interesting one too, you know, with everyone I've interviewed, we're, we're all committed to the work that we do, but there are the few people out there who do take advantage of them, you know, who sort of give people who are actually dealing with illness, a bad name. Um, and that's where it's like, you can, I can understand why the laws are in place and I can understand an employer's trepidation perhaps, but it's also to understand at the end of the day that like, everyone's just looking for commitment. And as long as you can demonstrate that you're committed to what you're doing, but when you disclose on that first day, as you're saying, Hey, by the way, this is what happens when the defibrillator goes off. If it does go off, um, have your employers ever felt like that's a huge responsibility that's sort of heaped upon them without their prior knowledge? I have never had that experience, but I will say that I know other people who have these defibrillators and that's not my experience. I think is the, it's not the norm. Um, you know, I, I think that depending on what line of work you're in, a lot of people I know are in the creative industries, um, someone might have, I don't know, not a problem with it, but it does, it does pose some concern. (laughs) Yeah. 
when you don't understand what one of your employees is going through and you think it might be an impediment to either your job or their job. Or even just knowing what the procedure is, you know, because I, yeah. I imagine, I mean, what is it like if you're, has your, first of all, has your defibrillator gone off before? Oh, I need to find some wood to knock on. No, it never has. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, never has. If it does, is it kind of, does it look a bit sort of like epilepsy? How does it look? I think that um, it's literally just one shock. So it's a jolt mm. and then it's done. It shouldn't shock you again unless you have another um, irregular heartbeat. Oh. Um, and I will say that my doctor, uh, my cardiologist has told me that usually you will have already passed out by the time it shocks you. Got it. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's not like you're yeah. standing there and all of a sudden you get hit by lightning and then continue. I sure hope not. I have considered what that would be like. I don't think, I think most people, when you have those kinds of regular heartbeats, mm. you don't get enough blood circulation, you pass out and then it shocks you. Right. Um, I think that's kind of what the expected. Well, yeah. And your blood pressure would be dropping. So of course, I mean, yes. that all makes sense. Yep. Now in terms of also disclosing this to employers or friends or family, mm. um, have you, or even doctors, have you ever been confronted about justifying the fact that you have something going on? Have you ever had people doubt you or expect more than just your word? That's funny. I don't know. Mm. I feel like I have, but I don't really know what's going on in people's heads when I tell them about it. Um, at my, my last job is when I actually had, uh, the surgery. And like I said, I'm, I'm pretty close with my supervisors. Um, and so they were pretty compassionate, but other people who I worked with, um, when I told them about it, I felt like they didn't believe me. <laughs> and, and, but that, was that all in your head? Was that sort of your own emotional response? I still feel that way sometimes. Like a couple of days ago, I was telling um, someone who I used to work with a story about, um, oh, you know, I think that this is going to happen if I have to like shovel the snow that's outside, I'm going to just pass out. And they were like, ha ha ha. And I was like, well, that, that's a real concern. Do you think that's a joke? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, and it's, but that's also where it's like your sense of humor naturally changes. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I had to laugh, but it was also kind of like, do you not believe me? I don't think you take <laughs> this as seriously as I do. Yeah. Well, and I wonder also, I, I mean, you know from listening to the show, I, I tend to also ask, do you think it's because you're a woman, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you're doing that thing of second-guessing yourself or um, thinking that people are thinking less of you because of your heart? Heck yes, I do, because I, well, I have two jobs. I work in photography where I'm self-employed, um, and I work at a, an institution that in a library where it's mostly women, so I feel like that's kind of different. But um, for photography jobs, uh, I don't think some people can see the difference between being, like, not physically strong and being ill. Um, I have been told before... Um, like, wow, you're not very strong. And it's like, you know what? I'm not really, I kind of have arms like Linguini, but like, also I'm strong enough to do my job. Some things I just don't do because it's a concern, you know, and I'm pretty open about my heart. Yeah. Um, And I think some people still see it as a weakness. And those people, are they men? Uh, yeah, mostly, mostly. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, sort of the gender parity lines, um, yeah. I find, with the perception of one's illness um, and the being ill itself, you know, and, yep. and the outreach involved. And um, it's, there's always that divide. Um, yep. and, and I think also in terms of the concept of invisible illness, at least with it, where it comes with regard to autoimmune diseases, it's seven out of 10 people are women who have them, right? But with something like cardiomyopathy, you don't have to be male or female to have that, I imagine. Yep. Um, And same with migraines, you know, but um, 
it's more likely that, you know, the people who are going to share about it may more likely be women, but they may also feel more discriminated against in certain situations. So it's always very fascinating to see where one's particular experience lies. Yep, absolutely. So now I mentioned that you, um, you have used your photography to channel some of your experience. So to me, that's, that's a form of advocacy, particularly if you're showing your photography. Um, can you talk to us a bit about the experience of, of being an advocate for someone in your position and um, any other ways in which perhaps uh, your experience has changed into an advocacy position? Sure. Yeah, I, it's funny. Advocate is kind of what I strive to be. I don't even see myself as one. Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> I have a really good friend, Lindsay Davis. She um, is a really strong advocate for, uh, for people who have these ICDs, and she also has cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of our friendship who, you know, she, she really motivated me to kind of speak more openly about it. Um, so, you know, there are advocates who are inspiring me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured if other people who have invisible illnesses are going to see my photos and think, well, that's how I feel, um, then it, then it's worth it. Um, and it, it has been difficult to kind of be open, uh, because I don't want people to inherently see this associated with my name and think, oh, she must be really weak. She can't do her job. She that's can't. That's thing, isn't it? That like, we don't want to be defined by our quote unquote disability. It's just part of who we are, but there's all these other things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Um, and so I can understand that completely. It's funny though. I, since kind of putting my images out there, I have had way more positive feedback than I have negative feedback. Um, So that kind of keeps me going. And I would say also just from the photography of yours that I've seen, um, a lot of your work actually deals with light and shadow and it deals with what can be seen and what can't be seen. Um, whether it's photos of your scars or not. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank so, you for saying that. That is <laughs> glad my message is getting through. That's right. <laughs> but I mean, it is very much about that because you're, you're photographing limbs behind fabric and, and we're, so we're seeing shape and form, but not necessarily in its purest sense. Um, if you will, I don't know if that's really the most appropriate choice of words, but no, no, the idea that you're dealing with really truth in that way, you know, like what's the stuff that we hold closer to our chest and what's the stuff that we release to the wind. Absolutely. So it's great that you're working with other advocates and have close relationships with them. And I know that you were also inspired by Mercedes who was on the show as well because of her experience with lupus. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was actually watching reruns of America's Next Top Model when I was in the hospital. Mm. It was like, and I, that was before I was even diagnosed. And then when I was diagnosed, I was like, so she was really the first face that I put to that disease. And was it kind of a relief to have someone out there? Oh, heck yeah. Oh God, I'm like that person. Yep. Yeah. Because you know what? I mean, still to this day, knowing that there are other people, especially other women who are working and doing really cool things while having cardiomyopathy, that's what makes me think, well, why can't I do that? Um, it's really a kind of therapy. Yeah. It's so important to create community in that way, you know, cause it's like, obviously you have your immediate support system. You've got your mom. I'm sure you've got friends and family who are also there for you. You know, you've got your friend Lindsay as well, but to have something on a larger scale where you're seeing kind of a message from someone else, which gives you a certain sense of validation, doesn't it? Like it it really gives you a, um, a sense that your existence is, is true and, and you're not the only one. It's that not being alone. Yep. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, I think I've, I've made more friends in the past few years who have invisible illnesses than who don't, because I think we just kind of understand each other on a different level. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's just energetically, like, all right, I got to go. I got to leave the party now. Cause I'm just, yeah. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. It's so, that's so true. And it's not in an exclusive way to, in the sense that you would be sort of forsaking your friends who are perfectly well for those yeah, yeah. visibly ill, but it's just that there is a level of understanding of like what you're, how you're able to exert yourself, what you're able to contribute, um, you know, social in social situations, especially where there's, there's a lot of sort of hidden pressure to show up, you know? Yep. So, um, having those support systems I think is really wonderful. And it's great to hear that you've not only, looked outside yourself and your community, but also created a community yourself. That's really important. And it's hard to do. I think a lot of us struggle with the pride factor too, you know, because it's like, first of all, when you get hit with something, sometimes you get so blindsided, you don't know where to look. And by the time you figure it out, you know, um, yeah, it can be a brutal journey, can't it? It really is. And to tell you the truth, it's not easy to find these communities either, which is why I'm so glad that things like this podcast exist. Because I mean, sometimes, like I was literally sitting on Instagram, scrolling through the hashtag cardiomyopathy to try and find other people who I could talk to about it. Wow. Um, You know, it's, we really need better community building in the chronic illness community. Yeah. Well, and hopefully there'll be other people who listen to this episode of the podcast who go, Oh, someone who has the thing I have, you know, um, and be able to see your work, um, and your experience reflected in the work. And, um, you know, it, it's, it poises you to be sort of part of the next wave of, of advocates, which is really wonderful. Oh gosh. I hope so. Well, that's, Great. And we're going to link to um, Sarah's work on the episode notes. So you guys will be able to check out her work and, um, and, and really delve into her experience through her photography. So um, how important do you think it is? I mean, speaking of community, Sarah, that we, we keep talking about invisible illness. I mean, I, I know that there are many ways in which the system does and does not work for us. And you've experienced both. <laughs> um, but, you know, is it a talking cure? Is it a community building cure? Is there a cure? Um, how do you see the next steps for those of us in this, in this very large community? I think it's absolutely about being more open. Hashtag mm. oversharing. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that hashtag. That's why I use it. <laughs> I think it's absolutely about being more open. Like, like I kind of said, I think we need a culture of better compassion. I think we need to understand that like working yourself to the bone doesn't make you a better employee. Being compassionate and understanding other people and being able to build community makes you a better employee. Um, I don't know why we drive our, I mean, sometimes it's necessary to kind of work yourself to exhaustion if you're working towards a goal that's really important to you, but also just workplace culture in general, I think needs to be, there need to be more conversations about illness. Um, I think people are scared to talk about it because, you know, it's one of those things that we're almost not even allowed to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. I think on a certain level we've been conditioned socially, you know, that, that there are certain subjects that are taboo and there are certain subjects that are not. So there's that where it particularly applies to women like don't show up at the office and tell everyone you're on the rag, you know? Um, Although I'm definitely that employee. (laughs) 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 Or, you know, or there's, there's the concern that if you do reveal something, you will be held to a double standard, right? Yeah. 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 So it is about compassion. I mean, this is what it always comes down to. And it's so fascinating to me that, opening up these conversations with so many different interesting and, and people with varied experiences on the spectrum of invisible illness. Um, the bottom line for everyone is compassion. And to have come to that conclusion when you've had a really rough go of it is hopeful to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that like we're the ones going, Oh wait, compassion. You know. (laughs) So I think in that sense, quote unquote, well, people have a lot to learn from the rest of us, don't they? Yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny though, because it's like, you know, you're saying yes, they do, but there's also an element of like, do they? Oh, I hope they do. You know, (laughs) we all, we want everyone to like us and, and, and to be accepted for who we are. And, um, but I think it's that, you know, we accept people being well. So why can't we accept them 
having a, a rough go of it here and there. You know, everyone yep. has rough patches. Yep. So, um, now, as you know, I'm sure, because you listen to the podcast, I like to wrap up my, my interviews. And this has been such a great one, and I'm really looking forward to getting it out there. And hopefully connecting with some people out there who also have cardiomyopathy like you. Um, I like to wrap up the episodes with a, a top three list, oh, a couple of them. And um, the first one is uh, your top three tips for someone who suspects they might have something off um, or maybe potentially heading into invisible illness territory, what would your top three suggestions be for someone in that situation? Um, do some research. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm by training a librarian. So I always <laughs> say, go to your nearest academic library and use their scholarly databases. <laughs> and that's great because the, then what you're looking at is reliable information. It's not. Yes. <laughs> um, I would say don't be discouraged if you try one doctor and you don't agree with them. Um, mm. If you have the ability, try another doctor. Yeah. Um, and build stronger relationships with the people who love and care about you um, because it, you know, it could be a long journey and you will need those people. Yeah. And what about, I mean, you mentioned that you had changed your diet, which took care of your GI concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there are other, and also like, you know, with exercise, like those kinds of lifestyle changes that you've had to make and adjust around. Do you ever sort of cheat on those, those changes or, or have like guilty pleasures or secret indulgences that you turn to, um, either just to give yourself some jollies or, um, as a comfort activity when you're having a flare up? Oh, I'm a big cheater. Um, (laughs) (laughs) at my last year, (laughs) my last cardiology appointment, my, I told my doctor that I do like cardio once a week. And he said, you think you can do twice a week? And I said, maybe, um, I, I I've been doing good since then. I've done cardio twice a week. Um, some week I'm not gonna, I don't, it's hard for me to get myself to exercise. Well, especially in in a place like Massachusetts, like when it's cold outside, I I find like seasonally, I, I, I struggle more as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's miserable out right now. <laughs> so doing and doing exercise inside is even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and what are your favorite exercises when you do exercise? Because I know you said that you don't love it, but when you, when you can make yourself do it, what do you love to do? Um, I have an exercise bike, so I use that a lot. Um, when I'm not using it, it folds up and hides away, which is really nice. Um, I like yoga, although... I don't know if I really have the temperament for it. Mm, okay. What um, do you mean by that? Like you, you don't like to meditate? <laughs> um, no, I actually do like to meditate, but I have a hard time standing in the same pose for a really long um, time. I get kind of antsy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't know why, but um, so it's challenging for me, but I think it's good for me. It's good to train your mind to be more quiet. So I try to do yoga when I can. Um, and I also have a couple of just exercise apps on my phone um, that are really good because they're good motivators. You know, a little indication will come up every day. Have you done your exercises? And, and that helps me to motivate myself. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. And that's where like technology can be really helpful, like a smartwatch or a Fitbit. Yeah. Uh, connect to an app and remind us about things like that and give us good suggestions. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Any other, any other guilty pleasures? Aside from um, your, your cardio. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. I am, <laughs> I think I'm the one person with heart disease who's like allowed to have guilty pleasures because I'm supposed to eat really salty stuff whenever my blood pressure is low. Oh, no way. It helps my blood pressure kind of go up. And so I'm like, I'm not guilty at all. <laughs> <laughs> you just go straight for the chips. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's actually great. And that doesn't then affect your kidneys adversely? Um, no, they haven't complained so far. Okay. I don't think it's like a lifestyle that I'm supposed to like eat chips every day. But if it's really hot out and I need a pick-me-up because I'm going to go for a walk or something, I have 
something really salty and then I bring a bottle of water with me to just kind of keep everything going. What's your favorite salty snack? Chips. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My doctor has a joke that every time I have low blood pressure or really low blood pressure, I should eat a pickle because they're really salty. (laughs) I love pickles. I was actually having this conversation with someone recently where I was like, I love them. And this person hated them. And I was like, how can you you hate a pickle? (laughs) Pickles are the best. Whenever people get them with their sandwich and I'm like, I'll take your pickle. Oh yeah. I'm that person too. Yeah. Yeah. So send me your pickles. Yes. Send Sarah your pickles, guys. If you have pickles in the mail, you'll know why. <laughs> I think there is actually a pickle mail service. There's like ones that you can get in like bags that aren't in jars. They're like in little bags with all of the, the dill water. Oh my God, that's really weird. <laughs> start getting pickle mail. <laughs> oh God, what have I done? Actual pickles here. <laughs> Just to be extra clear. <laughs> well, Sarah, you have been such a delightful guest. I'm so glad we connected. And for those of you who who don't know, well, no one would know, I suppose. We actually connected because Sarah reached out to me when the podcast launched. She wrote me a letter that was basically fan mail and we've developed a a relationship and, and, you know, talked about what was going on with her. And so I invited her to be on the show. So I encourage those of you who are listening, who are digging the podcast, reach out, say hi, you never know what'll happen. Um, and I'm so grateful that Sarah reached out because it's been such a fruitful connection for both of us. Um, and I find your story to be so inspiring and I really hope that, um, everyone listening will, will really learn something today and hopefully it'll really help them find their community. So Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lauren. Yes, it is my absolute pleasure. And perhaps we shall have you back one day. Oh, I would love to be back. This has been great. Thank you so much. Of course. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.